was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, we are joined by one of my biggest theatrical idols, Gerard Alessandrini. Gerard is the mastermind behind all the editions of Forbidden Broadway. He has also contributed to the musical Diamonds, the TV special Men, Movies, and Carol, and he revised the book for a revival of Irving Berlin's Mr. President. Mr. Alessandrini, thank you so much for joining us. So how did you first get interested in theater? In theater? Well, um, my family, when I was younger, was... uh, interested and actually did some opera. And um, as, as a young man, I knew a lot of opera. I mean, very young, like four years old and such. And uh, we would go to, the Metropolitan Opera used to tour, you know, and I grew up in Boston. So, uh, you know, opera is theater also, musical theater, type of different musical theater. So I was interested and grew up in that area uh, from a very young age. And then also <clears throat> in the uh, the era I grew up, the 1960s, uh, there were a lot of movie musicals that were very popular, like The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and Funny Girl and Oliver. There were a lot of movie musicals every year. So I was seeing those and uh, became interested in musicals. And then it wasn't <clears throat> much of a leap to want to get the Broadway cast albums of you know, especially things like Camelot that had Lerner and Lowe's name on it and Richard Burton and Julie Andrews. So at a young age, it was a fun adventure for me. And I had a lot of exposure to it because I grew up in the Boston area. So not only was I able to see opera that was touring from New York, but also shows that were playing out of town. And back then they did a lot of that. Um, Most all the big Broadway shows, pre-Broadway tried out in Boston like the Sondheim shows, Company, Follies, Pacific Overtures, A Little Night Music. So we got to see those pre-Broadway with the original cast. And then also uh, they would come back with the touring cast and you'd see them again. So, and I could do that like every week, you know, I could go see a different show. You have to sit in the balcony, but it was affordable and it was very fun. So, um, especially by the time I saw the Sondheim musicals, I became very interested in theater. I appreciated his writing. I understood uh, the musicology. Um, I love that it was great theater, but also musical at the same time. So I would say by high school, I was very entrenched in musical theater. And um, then I started to, of course, do it at my high school. You know, we would do musicals and I um, had a nice singing voice. So I usually played the lead. And um, I was very knowledgeable of the whole area in high school. So um, I knew that I wanted to pursue that. So I went to 
first I went to the Boston University and studied music, and then I transferred to the Boston Conservatory <clears throat> of music where you could study music, but also theater and dance and drama. So who were some of your early inspirations? Well, Sondheim, for sure. I'm sure many people say that, but it's true. Uh, it seemed very modern. It seemed accessible. I understood it. I had enough of a background in theater and music to understand what was going on. And, um, and also, like I said, um, I, as a younger man, I was even seeing the movie musicals. So I was already interested in Roger and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and those classic writers from those period. And of course, Sondheim is an extension of especially Oscar Hammerstein. So I became interested in what he was doing. And then, you know, not long after that came a chorus line and Grease and Annie, and they are, they're all wonderful musicals. And uh, those were the musicals of my youth. So at what point during your early career and growing up, did you start writing parodies? Well, I, um, I very early, uh, it was fun. I like to make people laugh. I knew how to take a, a song and turn it inside out as what, as what a parody is doing. Um, I, my interest was theater, so I was already writing parody versions of shows, almost like reviews of a show to their own type of music, in a sense, sort of hanging them by their own rope, you know? So, um, oh, I was already doing it by 15 or 16, and I never thought of making a career out of it. I just did it for fun uh, and to make my friends laugh and to make myself laugh. I, um, I did want to write more, but I thought I was going to be writing original musicals, and I was already trying to start to do those in my mid-teens. But of course, um, a lot of people were, and it wasn't particularly always original or good. <laughs> so the parodies um, were more interesting to people. And then I was, I was, I was also had my eye on not being a writer, but being a performer and perhaps director and uh, getting ready to study theater, how to act. Um, I went to the Boston Church of Music there. I could study theater uh, as long as um, I studied music. And <clears throat> I had, a, like I said, I had a nice singing voice. So I uh, supposed that I was going to come to New York and be um, a musical theater performer. It wasn't until later that I realized, oh, I can also write it. So when did writing parodies for fun sort of start to become what will be Forbidden Broadway? Well, I was in New York about five years, so we're talking the early 80s. Uh, and um, I, let's see, I got there about 1979, 80. So by about, well, I guess it wasn't five years, I guess it was about two years into it, I was um, already a member of BMI, the uh, Broadcast Music Incorporated Writers Workshop that was run by Lehman Engel. He was still alive at that point. And I was part of that, not writing parodies, trying to write original musicals and trying to get jobs uh, as a performer. And I got some. And uh, I, uh, I would, again, I was writing these parodies for fun. And um, I remember I brought some of them into Lehman Engel's workshop and when they were having people do just extraneous things, not the assignments. And um, uh, before I did anything, Lemon Nagel said, oh, this is a very good 
way to waste your time. Don't do that. Don't write these. And then I perform the parodies and they, he completely did a 180 and changed his mind. He thought these are wonderful. These are funny. He was laughing hysterically. So um, a friend of mine, Pete Blue, who was a musician that was in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Remember that show? They had a long run on Broadway. He was um, leading the orchestra and he suggested, oh, you should put this together as a whole show with you and your friend, Norm Ling, a very talented, brilliant comedian uh, from that era. And we did, and we did a night at Paulson Supper Club, which is now the triad. It actually has, it's been renovated, but it hasn't changed that much. And we did it at Paulson Supper Club and it immediately caught fire, you know, and um, a lot of friends came and relatives at first. And then some of the critics like Rex Reed started to come and gave it a lot of accolades. And then we really hit it, hit the jackpot by February, 1982. It was a major sort of um, underground hit and all the celebrities and writers came to see the show. Um, all the stars from that era um, and classic Broadway stars like Ethel Merman, Mary Martin, Carol Channing. I remember George, they all came when I was George Burns, Sondheim came, Hal Prince came, and then um, a lot of just regular stars like Cher, Carrie Fisher, they would just show up. And we were packed for a couple of years. So at that point I realized, oh, I must have some kind of talent for doing this, for writing this. So I stepped back after a year of performing it. I was in the original cast with Nora and um, Fred Barton was a pianist. He's still working with us and he's a wonderful, brilliant musician. And um, I, I think our talents also added to the success of the original. But um, after about a year, I just stepped back and began directing it and rewriting it and updating it. I realized, oh, I can update this forever. That's exactly what I did. So, so I would say by 1982, I knew what my path was. So when did you start auditioning actors for Forbidden Broadway? Well, let's see. Well, at first, um, Nora was in it, and Bill Carmichael, a good friend of mine who I'd worked with, and Chloe Webb. It was just a group of friends who got together. Fred Barton was recommended by Nora. So for the first year, we didn't really audition too many people. We had an understudy, one female understudy, Carol Wilder, was our original standby. She's a wonderful woman. and uh, But it wasn't until... Oh, probably 1983 when we were going on to different and hopefully better things that we needed to replace the cast members. I remember Dee Hody was one of the first people to um, join our cast. So we were auditioning about a year later in 1983, maybe late 82, 83. And Dee Hody joined the cast and then I left and Jason Alexander replaced me. So we were getting good people. And um, it was a learning experience to how to audition people because I was an actor and I'm, you know, peripheral writer. I wasn't a, really a full-time producer. So we were, you know, um, the pool of talent we were originally pulling from were, were our friends. And then we began to audition people around. Um, and Morrison was in the show. She had already been in uh, Merrily Rolong on Broadway and that run had ended and she replaced one of the girls. And um, I mean, she gave a great addition. Of course, she was great in the show, extremely versatile, wonderful person. So, um, and then, you know, uh, 
as it went on, as the run went on, and it did go on at Paulson's, we were having massive additions, you know, equity principal interviews and seeing people from all over, submissions from agents. So it became a big job. I had assistance. When we were playing at Paulson Supper Club, Sella Paulson was the owner of the club and she was a very good businesswoman, a beautiful person. And uh, she helped me learn how to produce it. We co-produced, even though it was already hit and money was already coming in, we had to figure out who got the money and all of that stuff. Um, not that it was really big bucks, but it was enough to be concerned about. So Stella helped me organize the, the management of the show, the additions, that sort of thing. And she was attached to the show for many years. And we used to, you know, as the run went on, we auditioned more and more people. So what have been some of the most memorable auditions, either for good or bad reasons? Well, I, I don't remember the bad ones too much. I only remember the good ones. I know that Brian Batt, the incredible, incredibly talented actor who's also has a very famous career of his own, you know, Jeffrey and 12 Years of Slays, all of that things. And, um, and he's got a new show of Tennis Williams, one, one, one man show of Tennis Williams that's coming up. And um, I remember he came in and we didn't really have an opening at that time. I think we were set with the men. They were already in the show, but we were doing future interviews. And I remember he, um, at that time, we were already spoofing Les Mis, Les Miserables. And um, I had the song, you know, Bring Him Home. And my parody is, you know, take the key down, it's too high. God, it's high, the key's too high. And I remember Brian, mistakenly sang our parody lyric and sang, bring it down, which is even a better parody. So I put that line in the show and um, thanks to Brian. And, and, and about, oh, maybe a year later, we hired him to be in a new edition because I would do new editions of Ben Broderick that the press would come in. And uh, he was so good that he was worthy of being cast in the new edition. So I remember him, I remember Christine Petty Gave an edition when she was young. She was fresh out of college and wasn't even union yet. She gave an incredible audition, very funny, lots of imitations, wonderful voice, beautiful girl. And again, we didn't have a spot in the show at that point, but we offered her um, one of the first tours of Forbidden Broadway. She was out on that. And then while she was out on the road doing it, we had an opening and I pulled her right in. But I remember her audition was so funny and it was so clear immediately that we needed to hire her for the show. <clears throat> um, uh, I'm trying to think who else gave great auditions. Well, I think that um, Donna English, who did Forbidden Body for a long time, also a talented, wonderful, great actress, gave an audition. And it became clear to me that her acting was phenomenal and that we should use her in the show because to really be funny you have to really be a good actor too and that's what she was so um she i remember she gave a great addition and i think we had her come up to my apartment uh it wasn't casting couch edition which is where my piano was there and, and phil george our assistant director was there or co-director at the time so uh that was a great addition when i auditioned these people it was so apparent immediately that they could handle the material so those are the additions I remember. So I want to ask you, how do you decide which shows to parody when you're making a new edition? Oh, that's a good question. Well, of course, there's always um, 
let's go with the show that won the Tony, you know, the big hit show of the year. There's usually a, a second hit show of the year. But um, I think more than anything, it's about our people seeing the show. Because there are some shows that I've parried over the year that sort of are worthy of parody. But uh, if the people haven't seen it, I remember uh, we, we had a nice, funny parody of Sideshow. But the show, you may have seen it, or people in our OVR may have seen it, right? Theater people. But the public wasn't generally going to because it didn't have that long of a run. So even though the parody was funny, it wasn't really worth keeping in or doing because people hadn't seen it. So it's important to do the shows that everybody's going to, which are the hit shows. So it's what's the show everybody's going to. And then of course, there are many ways to parody a show. I really enjoy parodying shows that take themselves seriously. So when you see, when I saw things like um, Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables, Titanic, you know, they take themselves very seriously as well they should. There's a lot of beautiful writing and theater in them. Those are well worth parodying and maybe doing a lengthy version. Uh, we'll talk about Hamilton a little, in a little while. That's a show that's tremendous that also takes itself seriously. And um, that, that was such a revolutionary musical, excuse the pun, that I decided to do more than just a number on it. But um, I think the shows uh, that I really took aim for were the serious musicals. And that includes a lot of Sondheim too, because they're dramatic or they have 3D characters and they tend to be more serious. The settings tend to be more serious. So they're very easily parodied. So I went after that. I uh, tried to stay away from musicals that were already self-parody. Like I remember producing the, uh, excuse me, spoofing the producers was a little difficult because in itself it's hardly like Forbidden Broadway. I think I found a way, we had a little parody of Mel Brooks and um, it, uh, you know, I would do them to touch upon them because they were big hits, but I would mostly focus on the musicals that took themselves seriously. So what have been some of the hardest shows to parody? Well, as I just mentioned, shows that are already self-parody or that are very light or shows that um, are silly, sometimes are hard to parody because uh, in a way they're already um, parodying themselves or they may not uh, have enough gravitas to parody. So those are hard to do. Um, sometimes it's hard to parody a show when there's no star in it because Forbidden Broadway is frequently parodying the stars more than the show. So that, that can be a challenge. But of course, there are the exceptions like Les Miserables, which is, uh, you don't need a star to parody it. But uh, those shows, I know sometimes, and shows that are worth parody that don't run, I spoke of that. And if they're gone in a few months, since we're doing topical humor, that's difficult. And sometimes disappointing. For example, in way back in 1995, Forbidden Broadway Strikes Back, we had a parody of the musical Big, which was um, very parodiable because everybody knew the movie and uh, it was a very upbeat musical, but had um, issues with it. So we did a parody of it and it was very funny. It was very funny, brought the house down every night until the show closed about four months later. And then every night you'd hear the laughs dwindle, dwindle. And then a month later, we just had to pull the number because there was no response. 
because people weren't seeing the show. So it's hard to parody shows that don't have a long run. So Forbidden Broadway has had large success, not only nationwide, but worldwide. Why do you think that is if people haven't been able to see any of the shows you're parodying? Well, that's not necessarily true because those shows are known around the world. And Broadway is not just on Broadway. Broadway is beloved by every community in America and many communities outside of America. So um, Broadway is a worldwide phenomenon and the musicals and people buy the cast albums, they listen to them, they love them before they even see them. And then of course, most of the big musicals do tour uh, or end up in Tokyo or Singapore or definitely London. So we just have to wait until those shows went to those places, which wasn't long after they appeared on Broadway if they were big hits like Miss Saigon. Um, so, uh, and we recently had the same luck with Hamilton. So it's because Broadway is worldwide, then Forbidden Broadway can be worldwide too. So what do you think have been some of your cruelest or meanest parodies and have there been? Uh, well, I always wish uh, some of the star parodies have been cruel, you know? Um, Although if they're funny, they're not that cruel. If they're cruel and people don't laugh, that's cruel and not useful. If they're um, funny and people laugh, you can get away with being a little crueler than you might with other. Some of the stars that I love, I par you know, I love the Broadway like Patti LuPone, Bernard Peters, Julie Andrews. And even though they're very par parodyable because First of all, they have a great catalog of shows that they've done, but um, uh, they have great voices that you can imitate, you know, that are imitable. That's what makes a star, a great voice, really. So a uh, unique speaking voice, unique singing voice. So in that sense, I was able to parody them, but I love them so much. And sometimes I feel bad about them. I know Patty Lapone used to come to the show frequently, either to check out what we're doing or she was a good sport. And um, I, I remember, uh, hearing that she wasn't happy with our Anything Goes parody of her. But I know she came to see us parody Evita and Masterclass and some of the Gypsy, some of the other musicals she did. I always felt bad that um, some of the Julie Andrews ones are, are pretty vicious. And I think, I think I owe her an apology because she's such a hardworking woman and lovely lady and um, a great boost to musical theater, not only in the theater, but on film. And, but we love parroting her because everybody knows her. Everybody knows all that beautiful music that she sang. So I would um, always take a swipe at Julie Andrews. And now I feel bad about it. I, I feel I should have um, laid back a little bit, been kinder, apologized. But people laughed. They had great fun because everybody knows and loves Julie Andrews. And so do I. So that's the ones that I think are a little edgy because I actually do like those performers. Um, some of the, like, uh, I remember I didn't feel bad about spoofing Lauren McCall in her singing voice in the very beginning of Ben Brody. This is decades ago. For a while, she was the Broadway musical comedy diva. And even though she's a great actress and everything, you know, she really couldn't sing. And people were, you know, flocking to see her musicals applause and Woman of the Year as if she was Patti LuPone. <laughs> so I never felt bad about doing that. Um, although I like Lauren McCall as an actress for sure. So, uh, and some of the shows, the other thing that are cruel, 
that I don't mind being um, going a little far with are the shows that aren't good, that are multi, multi-million dollar productions that are basing their creativity on the money that they have and therefore taking Broadway down a wrong. So, uh, and they're easy to puncture actually. So, um, and it's fun to puncture that type of theater, spectacle theater, with theater that is anything but spectacle theater. In other words, Forbidden Broadway is not spectacle. We don't have um, an inch of the money that these people have. So some of those are cruel, but um, if they're funny, it's okay, I think. <laughs> so has anyone other than Patti LuPone ever said, even if it wasn't particularly cruel, bit, or has anyone been offended at the parodies you've done? Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they are. And uh, because, you know, uh, you think of me as a singing critic, but I also work in theater. And theater is very hard. It's very hard to put together a show that uh, garners a laugh or pace that you want. It's very hard to perform these shows. Uh, they take a lot of physical G. And um, I'm sure many of them are taken back. The only, th uh, although nobody's really complained uh, to us about that, I've never been sued, knock on wood. I think that most of those hardworking actors and writers that work in theater uh, understand how difficult it is and also have tough skins. And I don't think Forbidden Broadway is as nasty as what the critics often say. The critics just say something nasty and you know take them down and close their show or hurt their career. At least we were doing it for laughs and for love of Broadway. So they were a little more tolerant of us, I believe. And I'm grateful that they uh, didn't bother us. Um, uh, one um, theater person said to me once, oh, everybody loves, everybody in theater loves Forbidden Broadway, unless the number's about them. <laughs> so that might say it all too. So one star who was not offended, but very supportive and parodied herself on an album was Carol Channing. So yes. Describe yeah. how she's been involved with Forbidden Broadway. Well, she came to Forbidden Broadway early on when we had all those celebrities coming and um, movie stars and Broadway stars from that era. And uh, we didn't have a Carol Channing number. And she recommended that we had a Carol Channing number. Now, the reason why I think she was a good sport about it and liked it is because that's where she started in theater, doing mimicry. And she started in... Uh, couple of uh, reviews that were very popular in the 40s, like uh, London Ear. And I know she was um, famous for doing a Marlena Dietrich parody. She told me once that Marlena Dietrich, she did the parody and she was doing it in Vegas. And Marlena Dietrich came to see her. And Marlena Dietrich walked out in the middle of the parody, like she was insulted, right? And I think Carol was, um, you know, she, she certainly, Carol took it on the chin and made funny jokes about it. But I think she was um, hurt. And I also think she thought, well, I'm never going to be like that if I get to be as big as Marlene Dietrich. And she almost was as big a star as Marlene Dietrich, and, uh, or it was in a sense. So I think she um, understood where we were coming from. Of course, you must understand that all the people in Forbidden Broadway are very young. I mean, I gave a lot of people their first union job. Uh, they were in their early 20s. Um, so uh, again, theater people understand that you've got to start somewhere and that these young people are starting 
their careers and a very typical and time-honored way to do it is to make fun of the stars that already exist. So Carol certainly understood that and she wanted to be on one of the albums. I wrote a number for her, Imitation is the Sincerest Form of Flattery. And then I had her teach all the other actors how to imitate her, like, so it's uh, had another layer to it. Uh, that was fun. She would come see the show. She also told me, though, she told me once, oh, thank God, you always had the pretty young girl doing me, never the man. Thank God. I think she was also relieved about that. So now I want to ask you about your own performing in Forbidden Broadway, which you did for a while. What were some of your favorite characters to do? And then why did you ultimately decide to stop? Yes, I mean, originally, the reason I wanted to do Forbidden Broadway was not just to make people laugh. It was as a showcase as a performer for myself and Norma Ling and Fred Barton and Chloe Webb and Bill Carmichael, my friends. I just wanted us to have a showcase. I knew that Nora was a great, great singer. And, and I was a good singer at the time too, but nobody wants to come to you and I call back and hear you sing, you know, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina or On The Street Where You Live Again. So I thought, well, um, another way to use Forbidden Broadway would be, there's a new reason to come see us sing those songs and we could sing them very well. So originally um, my idea was that it would be a performing vehicle for me. And, uh, now we, we're going back a long time now, we're going back 38, 40 years. So at that time, there was a surge of revivals on Broadway. They were just starting to do them because they didn't really do them on Broadway up to that point. Yul Brenner in The King and I, Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady. So those were two of my specialties. Richard Burton revived Camelot. Uh, he hadn't done it in decades. And um, that's actually how one of my first actual Forbidden Broadway parodies came about. I was a waiter at Lincoln Center in 1980, and Richard Burton did a revival of Camelot that they played at the State Theater, which is where the City Opera used to be. Now, one of the ballet companies is there. But they used to do musicals there, so. And it was a big hit, it was always sold out. And I went to see it, and Richard Burton was in it, and he was much older at the time. At the time. Uh, but it was, a, it was a good production. And uh, one night when I was a waiter, about 8.10, 8 p.m., 8.10, people came rushing out of the state theater, like something was wrong. Everybody came out. The show had just started. And I stopped somebody and asked them, what's the matter? I said, oh, Richard Burton. They, they rang the curtain down to Richard Burton. And he started mumbling his lines and passed out. And they rang the curtain down. And now, and of course, the news reported that he had a medical problem or reaction to his medication. But it's probably because, you know, he had a drinking problem, too. It probably mixed with his medication. So they actually brought the curtain down to Richard Burton and they canceled that performance. And the next day, in the New York Post, which is a very uh, cantankerous newspaper, as you know, in red, it said, it's curtains for Burton, right? <laughs> I think I still have that somewhere. And I thought, oh my God, I wonder what the king is drinking tonight. Because the, you know, the real song is, I wonder what the king is doing tonight. So we made the parody, I wonder what the king is drinking tonight. And that was, that was talking about nasty ones, that was pretty nasty. Making fun of a person's alcoholic problem when they're still alive. And, um, that was one of the first Forbidden Broadway parodies I wrote. But originally, 
I and I did also happen to do an excellent Richard Burton. I still do like one of the best Richard Burtons ever. And um, those were my stars: Richard Burton, Rex Harrison, Yul Brenner. Uh, you know, I did a Tevia and Florent Roof, which I had done Tevia many times before in high school and college and that sort of thing. And um, Nora, you know, a lot of it was geared towards Nora Mailing, a wonderful talent. So she did the Evita parody and Larm Bacall that I mentioned. But um, I was also not just doing the imitations. I, was, I had a, a solid voice. So I could do like, uh, you know, legitimate baritone parts. And I got to sing a lot of great songs like Almost Being in Love and Oh, Kevin Klein. I did Kevin Klein. That was the other one. And, um, you know, uh, I was good. I was funny. And I knew how to like underplay things and let Nora carry the comedy. And, um, and of course, I was, you know, 25. So I, you know, looked nice, you know, take my shirt off and be you Brenner and all of that. Um, but as the show went on, I started to add numbers like the Carol Channing number for Chloe Webb, Dream Girls. And I would step out of the show and watch the show with the new number as with the director's eye or with the writer's eye. And we had some good people, you know, understudying me. So some really good actors. So it became clear to me that, or clearer that I didn't always have to be in the show. Uh, you miss Nora if she wasn't in that original version. Uh, you certainly miss Fred, who was a great pianist. But, um, and then uh, I wanted to do a whole new edition and write, rewrite everything. Uh, and I did, so that was the fall of 1984. And we cast Patrick Quinn in was essentially my track, you know, the, the Gerard track. I don't know if you remember Patrick Quinn. He was a major talent, funny, fabulous voice, handsome guy, perfect for Broadway guy. He had done many Broadway shows already and knew everybody on Broadway. And, uh, and he was great and he was very funny. And in a sense, he was better than me. And I realized, oh, I can find other actors to do my role, but I can't find anybody else to write it as well. Not that I was looking, but I knew that it was the writing and assemblage of the show that was the unique talent that I was bringing to it. And yes, over the years, we had many performer, male performers that were sort of in my track, like Brian Bat, Jason Alexander, who were tremendous, you know, like um, mind-blowingly great. So I didn't really have to continue as a performer, but I was the only one that could really put the whole show together. So um, I stepped back and did that more and more. And then eventually I let the performing go because Forbidden Broadway and some other writing projects kept me so busy. So I want to ask you about sort of putting together within the show, like how do you sort of assign actors to different numbers and has there ever been any fighting within the cast about who gets to do a certain number? Yes, all of the above. <laughs> Who's getting, oh sure, uh, right, this is early on. They, they both wanted to do the Dreamgirls number, you know, and Chloe really wanted to do it and I, I thought it'd be funny having her do it. Chloe, I don't know if you remember Redhead, very peppy has made a lot of films and tv and uh nora was upset that you know she didn't get to do the dream girls number so um the, right away that happened now most of the writing that i did for the show it works best when i know the actor uh know what they've done or know how they're going to perform um and then write the material for them so in a sense it's almost like writing for a tv star and then you say like how many things can i get this person to do that shows off the talent 
and um, we might uh, skip things that's not their forte uh, and then underline things that are what they can do. And also, uh, if I got to know the actor uh, very well, like Christine Petty, uh, I'd be happy to take suggestions, you know, like, uh, oh, gee, I want to do Bernadette in this this year. I remember 1996, uh, there was a, um, uh, oh, there was a, 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 this I heard, I don't know if this is true, so it might be apocryphal, but uh, this is 1996. They were thinking of reviving Kiss Me Kate at that time with Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters. And I had heard that they had actually done a reading. And if you think of Kiss Me Kate and those two talented people, it's a bit of a mismatch and they never did do that revival. Uh, but I I remember Christine said that she wanted uh, you know, me to write a parody of her and Brian doing Kiss Me Kate. So we so miscast to the song So In Love. And uh, I also remember Christine suggesting um, in that same version, uh, we had already done Ethel Merman for years, so it was sort of a dated number, but she suggested, oh, why don't you have Ethel Merman do a number with the guy from Phantom of the Opera and teach him how to sing. So we did that, <laughs> we did that. And um, it was just her suggestion that got me thinking. And then I wrote, um, you know, uh, the parody of that that we did for years. So I would take suggestions from the cast. And then, and then sometimes we would always be stretching what an actor can do. I'd pick what they could do. They might suggest what they do best, but then we tailor it to them. We might cut a number down because it wasn't their best or expand a number because it was their best. So it, I always love to work with actors who I know what their talents are, and then I can tailor make the talent, the number, to their specific talents. So I still do that nowadays. Sometimes I have new people I never worked with, but um, in this last edition of Forbidden Broadway in uh, 2019, uh, Forbidden Broadway, the next generation, we had uh, Jenny Lee Stern, who I worked with before, and she's very great about, oh, let's do a number about this, or will you write me something about that? Or I, I already knew her talent, so I knew what you could do best. And uh, Chris Collins Pisano, I had worked with him the year before, and I knew what his talents were. It was fun to write things for him. So, um, uh, and the other two performers, Aline and Manny, were tremendous too. And then uh, our next generation member, Joshua Turchin. Do you know Joshua? He's about your age. <laughs> He's a great talent and great writer and uh, wonderful personality. He was a lover of Broadway, so I sort of wrote the actual idea of who he is into the show. So yes, it really depends on their talents and it helps if I know who I'm writing for and appreciate the talents of the person I'm writing for. And that way it's not unlike writing for a TV show. You know, uh, at one point I did, um, a Carol Burnett did a TV special, Men, Movies, and Carol, and I was one of the writers on it. And of course, I knew, I knew very much what Carol uh, Burnett's, uh, you know, fortes were. So, and she was uh, very clear about what she wanted to do and didn't do. But it was great to write for a specific talent, and I like that. And in a sense, Forbidden Broadway is that also. So, one very important person in the history of Forbidden Broadway is Alvin Colt. So yes. At what point did he start working on it, and how do you think that having costumes really helped? 
Okay, I'm so glad you mentioned him because yes, that was the golden age of Forbidden Broadway was when Alvin Cole was doing the costumes. For those of you who don't know, Alvin Cole uh, was a major costume designer in the golden era. Um, some of his most famous musicals that he was the original costume designer for were On the Town, Guys and Dolls, Little Abner, many, many others, and plays too. And um, by the time it was the 1990s, a lot of our costumes were, were done uh, in Boston, where the show was also running. Didn't begin in Boston, I want to be clear about that, but it was also running. But it was, when we were doing a new show in New York, it was hard to coordinate that. So we needed a New York costume designer. So Mark Sendroff, you know Mark Sendroff, the famous lawyer? Uh, he's also, I'm lucky to have him as my lawyer and friend, was also um, helping Alvin look for work. And Mark suggested that we hire Alvin, who at that point, oh, must have been in his 70s or maybe 80s. Um, but although he was still vibrant and very with it, you know, when you get older, it's hard for people to take you seriously. So he wanted to work. So even though, in a sense, Forbidden Broadway was a come down for him because he had been doing multi-million dollar musicals and plays. And we certainly didn't have that kind of budget. But uh, he had a great love of theater and Forbidden Broadway and uh, a great sense of humor that seemed to match mine. So it was a great collaboration right from the beginning. And, uh, and then when we had Alvin come in and do the costumes, the show somewhat changed because up to that point, we've been doing it was minimal costumes, you know, and a lot of it was dependent on the lyric had to be funny or the actor had to be brilliant. So we weren't depending a lot on the costume, but when Alvin came in, we had it all together. We had, if my writing was good, that was wonderful. If the actor was great, that was even better. And then Alvin would add these very witty costumes. And I must admit that in that period, uh, it was probably like the best period of Forbidden Broadway. We're talking the, the 90s through about 2008 or so. Um, so for about almost uh, 18, 20 years, uh, Forbidden Broadway really had it together. I have to confess though, that there were a lot of numbers that I wrote that the writing wasn't really top drawer, but when Alvin put the costume on it, it became so funny that nobody would have noticed. So he saved my butt a lot of time with his witty costumes. And uh, he worked very hard and he loved theater and he was a great friend to us. And um, I mean, sometimes I think uh, for the budget we were giving him, uh, I'm going to guess, but sometimes I think he went out and bought some of the costumes himself or put some of his own money into it because he had such a love for what he was doing. And he did it right to the end. I mean, the um, the last costume that he did, he died before we even did the number on stage. It was Patty Lapone and Gypsy. So what year was that? Um, and he designed the costume and they were making it and he passed away. Then we put the number in and it was yeah, they were very funny costumes too. So what year did she do uh, Gypsy? 2008. 2008, right. So that was the last. But, but his work like, was lived longer than his life. And then, of course, we were touring using some of his costumes and his famous Lion King costumes that are they're, they're made out of household items like vacuum cleaner hoses and toilet brushes and uh, brooms and things like that are so funny. And we use them touring and around the world for decades. And we still use them if we do like a, a best of touring. They're still 
have Alvin's costumes in it. So I want to ask you about an, another important event in Forbidden Broadway's history, this time really towards the beginning, which was Rex Reed's review. So oh, yes. Okay. So, uh, uh, well, I, th this sounds kind of unsavory, but Nora, who had a wicked sense of humor, of course, to match Forbidden Broadway, uh, used to say like, oh, we made it because John Lennon was assassinated. It's a terrible thing to say. Terrible, poor John Lennon. And we feel terrible about his, uh, how we ended. But um, when that happened in 1981, uh, I was just pulling Forbidden Broadway together. Now, John Lennon has nothing to do with Forbidden Broadway. But what happened was, uh, for, uh, you know, he was um, murdered at the Dakota the famous historical building down the street on 72nd Street. So it was just down the street, uh, a block from Paulson's. And when that happened, um, you know, they interviewed stars that were living at the Dakota. One of them was Laura McCall. So they interviewed her and, you know, Harlow. Then they interviewed Rex Reed, who was also living at the Dakota. And he said, oh, you know, Laura McCall and I live here and now we, fear for our safety because of what happened. And Laura McCall went on TV or in the newspaper said, thanks a lot, Rex, for telling everybody where we live, you know, putting them in danger. And then he wrote a column back that was nasty. And then she went on TV and said something nasty. And it was like a celebrity war. You know, remember like when Rosie O'Donnell and Donald Trump had a war, it was like all over the news all the time. Now at that point, I have that parody, wicked parody of Lauren McCall in Woman of the Year. I'm one of the girls who sings like a boy. My voice is as low as the tunes I destroy. And it was very funny. It was, it was not funny now, but it's, it was topical then, very funny. So uh, Rex Reed heard that we were doing this Lauren McCall parody, and he came to see if it had been Broadway to see the Lauren McCall parody, because he had this feud going on with Lauren McCall. But he sat there during the show laugh and everything, not just Lauren McCall, like, uh, you know, Evita and Annie and Pirates of Penzance and Rex Harrison and Jim Dale and Barnum. He sat there weeping with laughter in the corner. Just loved it because he has sort of a wicked sense of humor himself. And it was a, he was a great theater go. And at the time, he was the main critic for the Daily News, which at that time was um, kind of a major paper. And he would run a column in the Daily News, a very important column. Um, and reviews. Uh, so we came to see the show and then we didn't hear any press from him for like a week or two. But then all these, like I mentioned, celebrities started coming to see the show. Christopher Reed, Paul, Hunt. I mean, who was the star back in 1980? All, all those movie stars came to see. Every night we'd come to the show and there were limos outside the show, right? With these stuff, waiting for these celebrities to see the show. So, uh, and we were hit, but we didn't know why. There was no press on us, right? And then a man came up to me after the show. He says, I work for CBS. And um, do you know why all these celebrities are here? And I go, well, I, I don't really. I'm glad they're here, but I don't, I don't know why Prince Rainier was at the show, right? That's, I mean, these are the type of celebrities we had. Oh, not all the writers, you know, Cy Coleman, all of them. And, and he said, it's because Rex Reed loves your show. And he's going to write a full page rave review 
but he wanted all his celebrity friends to see the show before he ran the review because it's such a rave that you won't be able to get in for two years after the rave runs. And sure enough, in mid-February, this full-page rave of Forbidden Broadway ran. So Rex Reed is really responsible for um, uh, making Forbidden Broadway what it is. And um, I mean, it was an unbelievable rave. I've, I've never seen a rave at any show like that. And, you know, and it was very complimentary towards me and uh, Nora and everything. And uh, it put the show on the map. So that's why all the celebrities are there. And, and then once that, that review ran in the Daily News, well, then the other papers felt that they'd been scooped. So the Times came in, did all these articles. And I remember I was on the cover of uh, the Arts and Leisure Weekend section, big picture of me. And, uh, you know, um, the Post ran articles and articles, all the news, you know, so he really uncorked the magic bottle by writing that review. And, um, you know, I think Rex, it was, Rex Reed was a perfect person to write it because I think he had an inside vision of show business. He was a great writer and a great sense of humor himself. And it was his way of uh, getting back at Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall did come see the show, but not that version when she was in it. She waited till the number was out, <laughs> right? And then she came to see the show. But she was very delighted and um, complimentary towards me. And I talked to her afterwards and I guess she couldn't stand to see herself parody, but she was happy to see everybody else parody. So I want to ask you about some of the most memorable celebrity visits, not just because they came, but maybe because they came backstage or something they said. Oh, well, most of them would come backstage because as I said, um, you know, everybody in show business started out doing things like this. So they understood that these young actors were uh, starting new careers and uh, they were, they liked that. And, and a lot of uh, some of the older ones don't remember, they were happy to be included. Uh, for example, Mary Martin and Ethel Merman, they were happy to come see the show because their careers were essentially over or nearing their end. And yet they were in the same show where we were spoofing or dream girls. So in a way it was saying, oh, you're still a viable star. So it's a backhanded compliment. Um, yeah, I remember the night, um, uh, actually Mary Martin and Ethel Merman didn't come together. Mary Martin came with Carol Channing and George Burns, that was memorable. And um, like now there are many, many other major stars, film stars that came. I wasn't as impressed as I was um, when some of the people from the golden age came, I really liked that. I remember meeting Tony Randall, being very impressed with that. Tony Randall's a great comedian himself. And, uh, you know, I see those Doris Day Rock Hudson movies now, and they're still so funny. But he's really stealing all, all he's in all three, and he's stealing them all. But who else? Um, well, I liked it when the uh, creative people came, whether it was uh, Hal Prince or Stephen Sondheim. They, they'd come frequently. Um, uh, Des Mackinoff, um, all of those uh, directors, writers came. I mentioned Cy Coleman, uh, Kander and Ebb. You know, I was very impressed when they came. Um, I, uh, I, at that time, I used to be a big record collector. Well, I still am, who am I kidding? LPs, and I had my LPs, and I lived right near the theater. So if I knew somebody was there to run home and get you know, the records and have them autographed. But actually, I remember uh, after one show, there was a celebrity there, and I ran home and got these records, and the celebrity was Maggie Smith, right? And, uh, and somebody said, well, what do you have for Maggie Smith to sign? I said, well, I have the soundtrack of Prime and Miss Jean Brody, but I also had 
New Faces of 1956. You know what that is? That's a Forbidden Broadway type review from the 50th century. And she was in the chorus. And sure enough, her name is like really, really small. It's on the, the album. And, and she has one line in um, the Tallulah Bankhead parody, see? And, and she laughed when she saw it, she, that I knew that she remembered. And see, that's why she was after Nevada, because that's essentially what she started too. Before she was famous for doing Shakespeare and winning Academy Awards for movies, she was doing funny musical reviews. Uh, who else? I mean, there were so many. Um, uh, oh, I remember Rex Harrison came uh, when we were doing a spoof of Madonna. She strains in vain to train Madonna's brain. And uh, and he loved that. And, uh, and he, uh, he, I mean, he was just head over heels. And he, we chatted afterwards and he signed some records and he was very nice. And again, he has a great and wicked sense of humor. So, I mean, these are celebrities that I particularly like. I always loved it when Patti LuPone came frequently. Um, I loved um, Comden and Green, talk about the writers, you know, who were doing similar satirical musicals in their heyday. And they had a, a, a kindred spirit with Forbidden Broadway because they had done the reviewers in the 1940s. Um, so those are the celebrity visits that I remember. I'm trying to think of ones recently that we liked. Um, uh, I, well, you name them, and they, I think, okay, I can tell you, everybody came to see this spoof. Uh, well, yeah, there were stars that were coming back in the 80s, like Liz Taylor and stuff like that, because, but that's just because they were in, it wasn't necessarily see Forbidden Broadway, it was just because they were there. But I was more, and I didn't really talk to Liz Taylor, but um, I like to say everybody came to see this spoof, except Barbara Streisand, and Liza Minnelli and Madonna. But anybody else that we spoofed, you can. Oh, and Julianne is gonna came, although she sent me a nice note once that she said she would love to come see it soon, you know. Uh, Carol Burnett came all the time, of course, and eventually she hired me for a job. So uh, that was good, but you name them, they, they were there, you know. I remember once, um, this is going back before your time too, there was a drugstore next to where Forbidden Broadway was playing and, uh, you know, if you needed, uh, you know, a cough drop or something. And I broke my shoelaces, so I need some shoelaces. So I went to the drugstore and standing in the middle of the drugstore looking around was Christopher Reed, the actor who had played Superman in the 70s films. It was a big star. And uh, he said, uh, excuse me, but I'm looking for Forbidden Broadway. Do you know where it is? And uh, I said, I certainly do, Mr. Reed, just follow me. <laughs> so I brought him back with me. Um, oh, uh, Bette Midler recently, she sent us flowers and champagne. She liked being parodied. But you name them, they, they came once in a while. Oh, Angela Lansbury used to come all the time. Do you remember Angela Lansbury, right? She's still out there kicking around. Great, great star. And uh, she would come frequently. She saw it in California, she saw it in New York. Uh, she uh, presented me with the Tony Award. You know, I got a special Tony Award for them. I'm not saying that to brag, saying it because actually the greatest honor of that award was that it was presented by Angela Lansbury at a private party at the um, Tavern on the Green. How do you like that? That's even like better than getting the award, right? So, um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been celebrity. and I think celebrities come because you know we don't harm them, we don't bother them. They they enjoy seeing, if not themselves, spoofed, other people spoofed. And then, of course, Lin-Manuel. We'll talk about Spamilton in a minute, and Hamilton. But he's come to see the show. Yeah, I actually want to ask you about Spamilton now. When do you decide that a whole show needs a whole parody? Well, 
you know, I was walking down the street in New York in 1982. Sounds like a bad joke is coming. And, uh, um, and not in what, in what year was Hamilton? 19, 2015 or 2016. It had already arrived on Broadway. And, and I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's like the biggest hit show to come to New York since My Fair Lady, or maybe not even a chorus line, but I wasn't in New York when those shows came, you know, when they arrived. I certainly spoofed them, but I wasn't here when chorus line and My Fair Lady arrived. And Hamilton was at least as big of a hit of those shows. And I thought, you know, I've been spoofing Broadway shows for over 30 years, and this is the biggest hit show to come to New York. And I certainly don't know much about rap music or even the style that Lin-Manuel wrote the show in, but I thought, well, I've got to do this because why did I spend 30 years spoofing other Broadway if I'm not going to spoof the biggest hit Broadway show that's come in since I've been here? So I went right to work to spoof Hamilton. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do just one number. This is the biggest hit show since I've been here. I'm going to do the whole show. And, that, and I thought, well, what am I going to make it about? Am I going to make it about Aaron Burr? I mean, Lin-Manuel already did that. Am I going to make it about Alexander Hamilton? And I thought, no, I'm going to make it about Lin-Manuel. So then it occurred to me that it should be the story or my fictitious idea, imaginary idea, of what maybe was going through Lin-Manuel's head when he wrote Hamilton. So I made that the story. And once I had what the story was, in my mind, I knew it had to be a a whole musical. And unlike Forbidden Broadway, Spamilton does have a bit of a through line. Actually, Forbidden, the Forbidden Broadies did too, if you look at them closely. They certainly had an arc. And, you know, you could see uh, one, two, three acts and a point of view and everything. And more and more as they went on. But by the time I got to spoofing Hamilton, I wanted to make it actually um, have a whole arc, have a whole like story to it, to match the story in Hamilton. And that's what I did. And actually the last have been Broadway sort of carried on a lot, a lot of that um, uh, idea into uh, the Broadway that I was putting into Hamilton. They had a little bit of the story, just enough to uh, piece things together or to give it as I call it an arc. So I want to ask you about the last Forbidden Broadway. You took sort of a, well, you had six years excluding Spamilton between the two sort of variety editions of Forbidden okay. Yeah, I, I was in Cali, but thank you for noticing that. And so what was it that made you decide to take that break? And then what was it that made you decide to come back? Well, oh, well, it was Spamilton because uh, Spamilton was, you know, for us in the small show world, it was a big hit. We were doing it. We took productions to Chicago, Jerry McIntyre choreographed it, put that one together. Uh, we took a production to L.A., uh, we took a production to London. We were, we were doing it. We were, I was busy doing it. And I noticed, I liked that it had a through line and that it had a story and that we were doing it without the standing mics, not in a, a concert version like Forbidden Broadway had been done up to that point. It was always in a concert version with a standing mic and some, some dancing or choreography, as Phil George, my collaborator, used to call it. But um, uh, when we did a spoof of Hamilton, I know it had to have more movement. So Jerry McIntyre, who I worked with a lot and is a brilliant choreography, and also a good satirist choreography, came in and choreographed Spamilton. And I realized, wow, that's really fun. 
that's really fun. Let's do a Forbidden Broadway in the Spamilton way. Let's do it with Bonnie Mike's real choreography and a bit of a through line. So I was anxious to sort of reinvent Forbidden Broadway. I don't know if anybody noticed, but it was a different um, sort of um, animal than the other Forbidden Broadways. It was more like Spamilton. And I wanted to do that because uh, I just wanted to see, um, maybe it could make a funny Forbidden Broadway. And in, in many ways it did. Also, after Hamilton, we had Dear Evan Hansen and, and, and then that revival of Oklahoma that I called Woklahoma. You know, and I thought, well, that's almost enough to uh, warrant a new edition. Frozen. There were enough shows. Part of the reason Forbidden Broadway ran down in the past was, um, I, I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses, but maybe I am. It wasn't always that my writing was inferior. It was that there weren't a lot of shows. They weren't coming in like they used to. You know, back in the 90s, or the 80s, certainly in the 90s, a lot of shows were coming every season. It didn't seem like that, but they were. But it slowed down uh, through the years to the point where it's now it's completely slowed down, right? So there weren't as many. So you needed to wait a couple of years between editions. So after six years, excluding Hamilton, I thought, oh, there are enough shows to parody here. And indeed, we had Moulin Rouge and Hades Town, and as I mentioned, Oklahoma and Dear Evan Hansen. So there were enough shows to start uh, a new edition with. And I, um, I thought it was time to do it. And then I also wanted to do it with um, a young person, Joshua Tertian, because I felt, well, I've been doing body for 38 years, going on 40 years now. And this was always a vehicle for young people. So I tried to cast a young cast like um, uh, Manny Houston and Aline and Chris, and they were all in their 20s. And I thought, well, let me, even a little younger, I'll, I'll cast a young man to make it about young people, how they view Broadway and how the torch will be passed. And while we were assembling the new Forbidden Broadway, the next generation, Hal Prince passed away. And I, I was gonna put him in the show anyway, because we always had Sondheim or Andrew Lloyd Webber in the show anyway. But I put Hal Prince and then he passed away. Then I thought, oh, this really did become about like Broadway. It goes from generation to generation. And that's really true. Theater is passed on from generation to generation. One generation teaches the next generation how to do it. The next generation and, uh, develops it or adds to it or changes it. But it's always sort of based on what came before. And um, I wanted to include that in sort of the storyline. And I thought, what better way to do that with, with a young man who understands that and indeed will be part of the next generation, as you will be too. Thank yes, you. So I want to ask you finally about Forbidden Broadway. Right now, of course, there's no Broadway to spoof, but what do you think a next edition would look like? Oh, that's a tough call. I mean, we're really looking at a black hole. We don't know. Uh, you know, there's the business aspect of show business, like how much of Broadway will come back? You know, can they sustain these shows? I was thinking even the shows that closed, hoping that they would just reopen when this pandemic was over, like, uh, you know, the, it, they all have to be re-rehearsed and reassembled because, uh, you know, actors can't go a year without having done their role. They need to re-rehearse. And in fact, maybe some people have gone, gone on to other things or they've gotten too old for the part. So they have to reassemble these shows. That's a tremendous amount of money. 
um, I hope the funding is coming from somewhere, but I don't know. So, and I don't know what the new shows will be. I haven't done a lot of writing during this hiatus because I was always writing, not just about topical Broadway, but I was always writing for like, oh, we could do this show and this will make people laugh or they'll en people will enjoy this. I've always been writing for a projected audience. But we don't know how people are going to think or feel in three months, four months, six months, and what will play. So it's hard to be creative at this point. And um, we'll wait and see. I know that uh, with Diana, the show that never quite opened, they're doing a video version. So maybe a lot of shows might do that. I saw the video of SpongeBob, which was really excellent, you know, and the musical is very well done. Uh, and it is what it is, but uh, it was just very fun and very well done. So maybe we'll see more of that. And certainly Hamilton, you know, we all know that story, that you were able to broadcast the video. So, um, but again, I think, well, that's all wonderful, but it's not really theater. It's more like uh, film, you know, it's like um, uh, edited and viewed and point of view. And it's not really real theater, real live theater that we love. And we'll just have to wait and see. It's true. So I want to ask you about now two things that you did that weren't Forbidden Broadway. First, you contributed near the beginning of Forbidden Broadway. You contributed a vignette to the show Diamonds. Oh my God, I've forgotten about that. Yes. Yes, that's right. Uh, remember how Prince used to come see the show? He asked me to write a number for that, or the producers asked me to write a number for that. Um, well, I was very young. And as you know, it's funny, I am a baseball fan. And I think I would have written something completely different now. Uh, we were directed, each one, you're, you know, you're writing a number about blank, blank. So I was supposed to write a number about weather. And I don't know, I don't think I really hit the bullseye with that one. But that was fun to work on. And I met some other really good writers uh, at that point. It was very fun to be part of. Uh, I, I'm not sure, I haven't thought about that show in decades. Why didn't it come together? I think maybe the space where they did it was too big. I think maybe they should have let the writers powwow and decide who wrote what. There were, were some beautiful numbers, good talented cast. Um, gee, it still seems like a feasible idea, but at that time I was very young, but it was very, I think I learned more uh, about directing seeing that show because I saw how Hal Prince worked. And uh, I learned a lot from watching him direct than I actually learned about writing from that show. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about was at one point you started to do a gong chorus series. With oh, yes, right. Yeah, at the, who started that? Oh, well, that was because, <laughs> that was because one day I was sitting home watching The Price is Right. Sounds like another bad joke is coming. One morning I was sitting home watching The Price is Right, eating some Rice Krispies for breakfast. And the phone rang and it said, hello, Gerard, this is Cameron McIntosh. And I said, oh, come off it. Which one of my friends is pulling me? He says, no, no, it's Cameron. I'm sitting here in a hot tub with Andrew, with Sir Andrew. And, and they were, it was them. And they said, we want you to revive Mr. President, do a revival of Mr. the Ermberlin musical, the last Ermberlin musical. And I thought, oh my God. I thought in the back of my mind, oh my God, I can think of so many musicals to try to revive, but not that one, you know? But uh, they gave me the money, which wasn't a lot, but uh, it was enough. And we did it at um, Douglas Fairbank Theater where we were doing Food and Water. We did it on the off nights. And uh, I called it Goncores because it was, you know, make a spoof of encores. And uh, 
we did it and it, it soon became clear that um, we couldn't just revive Mr. President. I had to update it and rewrite it and uh, repoliticize it. And I did. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it came off well. Uh, I remember that Ben Brantley in his review, which was mixed to negative, not a pan, but mixed to negative, said that one of the problems with it was that you laugh at the jokes because they're familiar. You already know them. And I thought, oh, that's true. The audience was laughing. They were laughing a lot, but they weren't laughing at um, something because it was fresh. They were laughing because they, they knew the joke. Because when you're doing political humor, you know, you've seen a lot of that on TV already. So the joke has been around. And it does make people laugh, but it's not really great satirical theater. So uh, we just did that. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun to do more shows like that? But we didn't actually make money with Mr. President. And well, actually, you know what? We might have done more, but we did Mr. President summer of 2001, right? So, and, and, and into September 2001. And what ended it was 9-11 things. And, uh, you know, um, God, we thought Forbidden Broadway, you know, all theater closed when that happened. So not only Mr. President, but Forbidden Broadway. So uh, we thought, will Forbidden Broadway ever come back? And, but it was funny. Uh, we brought Forbidden Broadway back the Friday after it happened. We were one of the first shows to try. And I was nervous. I thought maybe people aren't going to like laughing at Broadway now that New York has been bombed. And, but it wasn't true, it was just the other way around. People were so, it was so exciting and they were so into it, like, you know, as a response to 9-11, let's, let's rebuild, let's make this rebuild. And indeed that was one of the greatest times in New York, rebuilding after that. Sad, but, but um, wonderful and hopeful. So Forbidden Broadway survived, but with all the trouble going on, we were just happy that Forbidden Broadway survived after 9-11. We didn't pursue doing other flop musicals or reviving other flop musicals as Goncores was the idea to do. And then the very last question I want to ask you is, do you have anything coming up for after quarantine? Were you going to do something? Well, yes, I'm worried. Just, just because the title is, um, I support Joe Biden for president, and uh, it's not really my idea. People were already kicking around the title, but we're trying to put together for video for Biden Broadway, and uh, I won't be the only writer on that. We, we've invested the powers of some wonderful writers. Uh, maybe I'll write a number two because we have to do it fast. It's political humor, and as I said with Miss President, it changes fast. But, but we thought we. Would tried to get a video version of for Biden Broadway in October. So we'll see if that's coming. Uh, after that, we'd like to get back to work with Spamilton. And, you know, we had a touring company out of Spamilton and uh, we did a video and uh, we had all these wonderful things going on with Spamilton. And we had all this interest in Forbidden Broadway, the next generation. You know, we played New York, but we haven't played. What about LA, Chicago, London? We have to play all those places. So I'm anxious to get back to that. Um, as far as writing, I've always wanted to write a, a comic opera buffo, and so maybe I'll get to that this time too. If people want to laugh, I don't know if uh, you know what the humor level will be or what humor will be like after this pandemic, because humor changes all the time. Doing you know forty years of in Broadway, I saw that different things were funny in different eras. So sometimes slapstick was more funny. Sometimes being verbiage was more funny. So that changes. So we'll see how it's changed after this is all over. Yeah. 
thank you so much for doing this interview. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. I know you enjoyed hearing Mr. Alessandrini's tales of Forbidden Broadway as much as I did. Make sure, as always, to return on Monday when I sit down with Charles Bush. Charles Bush is a drag legend and playwright. He is the author of The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, Times Square Angel, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, Red Scare on Sunset, and most recently, The Confession of Lily Dare. He is also the author of the book To Boy George's Taboo, as well as the writer of the novel Whores of Lost Atlantis. He is a Tony Award nominee and two-time Mac Award winner for his cabarets that he performs around the country with Tom Judson. Thanks again for tuning in.